You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest today is Nick Ryan, head of information security at Baker Tilly, the ninth largest accounting firm in the world. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Now, I mean, ninth largest accounting firm, that's incredible. How do you distill that into 30 seconds? Tell us about Baker Tilly. What's your elevator pitch? Yes, we have about 7,500 employees across the globe, almost 200 offices, and we do primarily tax, assurance work, auditing, and consulting. So a number of services there. And I'm responsible for all of information security. So that's protecting the actual computers, the servers, the data of our clients and of the firm and doing all the incident response, disaster recovery, and all the things nobody hope actually happens. Right. This is the job that you wish you didn't have to pay for, the one you wish that it wasn't actually necessary. Yeah, exactly. Incredibly so. Now, what's your favorite part of your job? Because it sounds like that, again, the job that no one wishes was necessary. And yet here we are. So what's what's fun about it? What do you like best? Yeah, you know, honestly, I have to say the best thing is being able to take complex technical subject matters and break it into, you know, non-technical contexts and stories and, and things that executives can understand. That part's really fun because it is a challenge to take those concepts and turn them so that everybody understands and you're not you know, making a fool out of people or making them feel like they don't understand something. And that's hard sometimes, isn't it? When you know that much about something, you're the expert. That's why you're the head of it. But to be able to explain it to somebody who is otherwise a perfectly intelligent, perfectly experienced, perfectly professional and knowledgeable person about other stuff yeah. and figure out how to get your point across to them, right? That translation becomes such a crucial skill. It really has, honestly. And, and it's one of those things where you have to learn each person's different, right? Because some people take information a certain way and there are executives who know a little bit more technical details than others. So mm. crafting it in the perfect way so they all get it. And you know, to your point, they're all very smart people in their own right. So you're, you're talking to them in ways that they understand. And you know, again, hopefully just not making them feel like, uh, what are they talking about? And how come I'm the only one who doesn't get it? Right, right. And chances are they're not the only one. Right. If you're being too technical in the weeds, there are a lot more. I always tell students and others to ask the question because chances are someone else is thinking the same one and usually more than one for that matter. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, what's one of the big issues of the day and how do you have to adjust your messaging when talking to different stakeholder groups about it? Yeah, so there's a in the information security space across you know all of the United States and the world right now. There's a huge uptick about privacy and and how companies are protecting your information, my information as consumers, and how we process and store and when we delete it and things like that. So there's all these states that are coming up with new laws and, and regulations, and we may see a nationwide federal level law that's going to be passed soon that's going to force companies to really take privacy of you know consumers very seriously and. This is a very tacit and salient topic because we don't want to be talking to attorney generals in different states to have information that was accidentally sent or collected or not destroyed and things like this and have to pay a fine. So to your question about talking to executives, it's 
each executive wants to hear something different when it comes to this issue. You know, I report to the risk committee and there are several people on this committee. We have the chief risk officer who all he really cares about is the risk of whatever decision we're going to make by going down this road of protecting the firm's data. Are we going to be higher risk, lower risk? There's some qualitative ROI that they want to see of, you know, us protecting data. What does that actually mean? Are we going to improve customer trust, which is, of course, a qualitative measure? Or is our brand reputation going to be satisfactory? And then we have, you know, the CFO, who all really cares about is the numbers. What are you going to spend on these tools to protect all this consumer information? And how much is it going to cost in the end of the five-year term? Sure. And then the chief legal, of course, legal is very concerned with what does this mean for actually naming this data, putting it in one place, tagging it with, oh, this is confidential. This is personally identifiable information. And they really care about what is our interaction going to be with lawsuits and possible litigation. So there's a number of different angles to it of every party that's involved. Absolutely. And you did a really great job. Thank you for breaking down the kind of overarching mindset of who's in risk, who's in finance, who's in legal, who's in something else, because we really do need to be able to, and hopefully everybody else will take notes on that to some extent, at least asking themselves questions. Okay, who are my stakeholder groups and how do I articulate in kind of one sentence what they care about that's different from what somebody else cares about? Because we do need to be able to hit on each of those things uniquely so everyone's needs are met, but in a way that isn't completely leaving others out of the dust. Or if you are going to tangent momentarily for that person, then you quickly either bring the others in or go back to the broader audience. But I actually want to go back to one thing that you said. You used a phrase that I hadn't heard in this way before, and I'd love for you to explain it a little bit more. You touched on it, but I want to make sure people didn't lose it in the course of the rest of the content. It's the notion of qualitative ROI, especially like you're in accounting at that point. So everything's numbers, isn't it? What possibly could be qualitative (laughs) and not quantitative ROI? And for those out there who aren't familiar, ROI is return on investment. So what kind of work would you need to do that would be measured in a qualitative return? And what would that return look like if it's not about the bottom line? Yeah, you're absolutely right. The easy metric is the quantitative, right? The quantitative measurement of it's going to cost this amount of dollars and we're going to receive this tangible percentage of revenue or you know something like that. So qualitative ROI is very important in the information security space because there are certain metrics. For example, brand reputation. That is something that you can't actually put a number to, but we want people when they think of Baker Tilly to think, I can trust them with my data. I haven't seen their name in the news for having a privacy data breach. You know, they're not on the front page of the New York Times because they mishandled a company's tax return information. And then there's other metrics such as customer trust. You can't actually put a quantitative number to consumer trust, but that is something that we want. So are we having repeat customers? Are they year over year satisfied? That's something that we want to be able to measure and grow and protect from an information security perspective because More and more companies are starting to take security a lot more serious. So they care about the companies they're doing business with, such as Baker Tilly, to say, are you guys really protecting our data and how are you doing it? And once we show that, the customer trust goes up. And that's something that we're trying to make sure that we market. 
And that can be hard to operationalize and hard to rationalize for a lot of people who are used to thinking in quantitative terms, particularly financial quantitative in the return. I invest this much money. I better make this much or save this much in return as a result to have justified the original expense. But when you start talking about brand reputation, that can be a lot harder to operationalize in a way that becomes measurable, even if qualitatively measurable. So the example of consumer trust as measured by repeat business whether it's by dollar value or just simply number of re-ups or however you would call it, perhaps. I think that's these are great ways to start to think outside the box for people who are looking for ways to measure success that aren't necessarily financially measured yeah. on a direct level. No, you're absolutely right. And, and the other, I think of it, it's a lot easier for the qualitative piece to look at the bad markers mm. in the water, so to speak, right? So for example, Everybody heard of the Equifax 2017 data breach. I forget how many hundreds of millions of records were lost of our data with you know social security numbers and whatnot. But that's a marker that can say to our company, okay, if we had a data breach, this is how consumers saw Equifax. Do we think that they see the, us this way? And you know, you might have to have an outside party run some kind of survey to get that information. But you have a starting point to say, okay, we, we know what bad is. So now let's make sure that we're not there. Yes. Yes. That's interesting. Measuring something by what it's not. Right. So it, it's much easier to decide, well, we know we don't want this. Yeah. So how well did we avoid that? That That's a really interesting way to take a whole different spin on it. Uh, now, in doing all of this, what's a communication skill that you are really good at? And what's something that you wish you were better at? I would say I'm really good at being able to understand the needs from each of these stakeholders. Because like we touched on, I know that the chief financial officer is really going to care about the dollars and cents of the investments that we're making that we have made in the past and where we're going to be in the future. Chief legal really cares about, hey, have we had any lawsuits? Are we projecting any? You know, are we setting aside any contingency money for this to make sure, you know, if we do get brought in, we can handle it. And then the chief risk officer is, you know, looking at a number of things and looking at our overall risk score. So I think I'm good at being able to take the different executives and give them what they need. What I wish I was better in, and it's tied into the same area, is having a presentation that meets the needs of each executive at the risk committee level without giving too much detail, without, you know, not getting exactly what they want to see. That's a really fine art. And I still am working on that. I think so much of that not only is about understanding the lens that each of them is looking through that whole general broad spectrum, know your audience, but also then there's going to be personality differences. There are going to be people in a particular role who are super detail oriented. They're really high C in the disc. They're, they yeah. like to dot the I's, cross the T's. They want to know the data behind it. And there are going to be those who were their successors, who maybe in the exact same role or could be their predecessors who are like, no, don't bog me down with all the, the weeds. I don't want to get lost in the weeds. Just give me the 30,000 foot view and I trust you on the rest. You can send me the rest in a PDF later on and I'll skim it. Yeah. It really is going to be very personality driven just as much as role. So the, the flexibility and being able to do that effectively going to keep you on your toes, huh? It is. It really is. And, and some people have certain ways they like to see the actual visual representation of the presentation, right? Like I have some executives who love to see infographics. They love to see mm. that architecture, you know, 
diagram that calls it out really pretty. Did you just call it architecture with yeah, an M? Architecture. Yeah. I yeah. haven't heard that word. <laughs> so wait, what is architecture like? Marketing, architectural, right. something or other? Right. Exactly. So the way that you're trying to show the architecture of you know something that you're designing for a security product, for example, you know, putting all these fancy words and logos and diagrams and all this within it, we call it architecture. It's kind of a funny. I love know, it. Yeah. So some people love to see that where others want to see it. Give me a wall of text or just give me a brief. I don't care about, you know, this. And then there's other executives who say, I just want to see the dollars and cents. What do you need from me to sign off on this dollar amount or not? So crafting that presentation to hit them all is, is certainly a fine art. Architecture. So I'll, I'll match you creative or or big word with a new big word. So architecture is an example of uh, what's referred to as a portmanteau. A portmanteau word is when you take, you know, two words and you smash them together yeah, yeah. or like they would do a celebrity names like Brangelina right. or those kinds of things. So, yep, this is a portmanteau word, oh, architecture. I learned a new one today. So I'll swap you a lexicon <laughs> for a lexical item. Awesome. So I'm done geeking out now. Back to our regularly scheduled program. Now, how sort of using bizarre portmanteau words on podcasts, how have you had to learn to shift your speech style or approach to connect with different groups more effectively? And um, was it ever hard to adapt while still being yourself? Absolutely. I mean, learning how to communicate effectively and with different personality types is something that does take time, right? And I've, I've seen that in my own career. And I actually have a great example of how I learned what not to do. And I used to report directly. This is years ago. I used to report directly to the CFO. Uh, and I was at the time a supervisor in the, in the technology group. And there was nobody above me. And I was doing the manager job. The manager role was there, but nobody was filling it. And I was, you know, building up a lot of resentment of, you know, hey, I'm not getting paid enough. I'm doing the manager role, but I don't have the title. I'm driving, you know, uh, 110 miles a day to get to and from work. Oh, that sounds like fun. When the home office I should be working at is 10 miles down the street. And, you know, I didn't feel like I had the communication style that worked with my boss and everything just felt off. But I never communicated that. I was always trying to hold the front of, you know, I'm Superman. I get it done. They know when they pick up the phone and call Nick, he's going to solve their problem. And I wanted to hold that perfect Superman persona out to the firm as a whole and especially my boss. And finally, I couldn't take it. And I ended up putting in my notice and I gave her two weeks notice. She was completely thrown off by that. Didn't see it coming. And we had a really long heart to heart. And I ended up learning about what it really means to be vulnerable with what's going on with you. How are you feeling about certain things and how to understand if there is a breakdown between communication styles, how to bridge that gap, how to say, hey, you know what? I didn't understand what you said when you meant that. Can you explain it a little bit more? Just certain things that I learned with that interaction that was really priceless in how I moved forward from that. I can imagine how that conversation went. So happy Tuesday, boss. I just want you to know I'm uh, this. Uh, this is my letter of resignation. This is my two weeks notice. I can see eyes opening wide, jaw hitting the floor. And the next sentence was what? <laughs> the next sentence was, are you serious? <laughs> and then the sentence after that was, what? Why? And uh, she ended up actually canceling all of her meetings for the rest of the day. And we ended up sitting in her office for probably about three hours going back and forth. And she was wonderfully emotionally intelligent, able to help me understand, you know, where she was coming from and I was coming from. And we had this great conversation and it was probably the best thing that could have happened to me. And did you end up leaving or staying? I actually ended up staying. So after we had all this conversation, we had it out about every topic and I was able to say what was working for me, what wasn't. She ended up saying towards the end, you know what, just do me a favor and write down everything that you want the retention bonus, a salary bump, whatever you want, title, I'm telling you anything you want. And 
she said it was really for her so that she knew that if I gave it to her and she couldn't meet those, that she at least had given it a try. And after having that conversation, I was certainly much more open to it. So I did that. I wrote this list and I remember kind of giggling, walking in internally thinking like, there's no way she's going to say yes. This is crazy. I put some crazy numbers on here. I put some crazy asks. And I remember I set it on her desk and she looked at it and said, yep, approve everything. Please stay. <laughs> My jaw hit the floor. And yeah. I said, okay, you know what? If you're going to meet everything there, I'm in. So we ended up signing it and I'm actually still here. So worked out really well. Oh, same. Yep. That's awesome. <laughs> now I'm curious, in the course of those three hours that you were talking, what did you learn? Yeah, you know, honestly, I learned a lot. One about myself. I learned how I was hurting myself by not speaking up and asking questions or assuming, making assumptions about what she was saying or what her expectations were. I was taking what she had said and I'm running with that and making up this whole story about why she said it when I really should have asked for clarity. Like what? Can you give an example? Where did you, where were you projecting certain assumptions? Yeah, a big one for me was actually the office drive, which sounds kind of minimal, but I mean, you know, the San Diego office. No, look, an hour each way and right, yeah. Right, exactly. Sure. So the, the office I wanted to work in was 10 minutes from, you know, 15 minutes from my house. And the office where she worked and the executive team's work was in Irvine, which is about an hour and, and change away. And there would be times where she would say to me, Nick, I need you for this meeting. And I would instantly take that little blurb, Nick, I need you for this meeting, as meaning she's saying I have to be in the Irvine office. Mm. And I wouldn't ask her, hey, does that mean I need to be there? Or does that mean I just need to remote in or whatever it might be? And there were a lot of times I would drive up there and then realize I could have done this remotely. You know, and then I should have said, now that I know this, I should have said, hey, do you actually need me to come up there? Is there a reason I cannot just go to this office and do it from there and be a little bit more inquisitive of her ask? So that would be an example of something. It seems so minor, but it is, you know, I built this whole story of she wants to see me in person and I have to sit next to her. And I made this whole situation up that really didn't need to be made up. It's amazing the things that we realized. Is there another example of an assumption that you made that you realized that you made? Yeah, let's see. It's interesting because, you know, I realize I'm just asking you to go back X number of years and, and rethink all of this kind of thing. But yeah. why do you think you made those assumptions? Yeah, I think to be honest with you, in my mind, I felt like asking questions or trying to clarify was being an inconvenience to my boss. Mm. That I was showing that Nick doesn't understand what you're saying, right? Or something's wrong with me because I just didn't get it. And I know now that that is clearly false. And she even told me that. But that is something that was just, you know, a little lie I had told myself, right, was, hey, I can't ask questions. And I used to think that there are absolutely stupid questions. And, you know, now I know that there's no such thing as a stupid question if it's coming from a genuine place. Mm. And I didn't realize that all those years back. What a great distinction. There's no such thing as a stupid question if it's coming from a genuine place. Did she suggest to you any ways that you could approach her? Did she have suggestions like, look, if you need something or if you're worrying, you can always... Did she open any specific invitation with kind of a paved road? She did. She did. She did a wonderful job in this conversation. It's, it's funny how, you know, as the years go on, you look back, and you appreciate certain things a lot more. And I look at that and, wow, I was 23 years old at that time and 24 maybe. And just to see somebody take that time, that executive who didn't need to give me any time. And she told me, anytime you don't like something or you don't agree or you're having a problem with it, call me, text me, get a hold of me, let me know. And she was really communicating the value that she had for me and cared for me as a person. So having that open door and, and the other part of it is I had to learn that because when I first came to her, I had one foot 
out of the door and I actually had another job opportunity. So I had that all lined up. So I had the comfort of knowing nothing bad can happen in this situation right now, because if it does, I'm just going to go work this other job. But then afterwards, there was a little period where I was actually nervous to go to her, even though she had offered and said, hey, I have an open door. Come talk to me. Text me. Call me, please. I want to hear from you. I didn't take advantage for a few months because I was afraid that, well, if it goes bad or if it doesn't, and she really wasn't meaning what she said, I don't have another job to fall back on. And I'll never forget the first I called her and it was actually about travel, which is kind of a funny theme. But I was flying up to San Francisco once a week for almost a year straight. And this is about, you know, couple months after. So I've been doing that for a while, but this is a couple months after our conversation. I remember saying, okay, I don't really think I need to go up there. This doesn't make sense to me. And so I finally stepped out and I called her. I was so nervous. Phone's ringing. I almost was like, please don't pick up so I can just leave a message and say what I need to say and not talk to you. (laughs) She picks up and I ended up just saying, hey, you remember when we had talked? You said, call me if anything's uncomfortable or you don't want to do it. She said, yep. I said, hey, I feel like the San Francisco trip this week is not going to make sense. Here's why. Boom, boom, boom. She said, don't go. You don't have to go. And it was so freeing. And I just remember all that stress, you know, I remember just pacing, waiting for this conversation. And mm. anyways, after it felt a lot more comfort. So that's awesome. And I'm I'm hoping everybody out there is listening to really both sides, listening to not just how you handled certain things, recognizing what you could have done and where you held yourself back and what the internal story was of sorts, but also recognizing how your boss handled that. And she seems to have been incredibly gracious and, and open to things and receptive and just how to not that you necessarily have to give all of your employees employees, everything that they want every time, but just the openness to listening and to hearing, okay, something failed here. I need to know what it was. And to being having the humility to be able to receive all of that input and saying, here's all the things that I was unhappy about. Here's all the things that I've been stewing over for long enough that I'm now ready to walk out the door and blindside you in the process. So for her to have that grace, it kudos to whoever she is out there. Absolutely. Nice. So there's a nice uplifting boss story. Those are always nice to have too. Now, this brings us to our listener 24-hour influence challenge. And I would love for you to take the opportunity now, Nick, to address our audience directly and challenge them to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? Yeah, the challenge I'm going to issue is to actually write down on paper the five things of your current role that you are dissatisfied with. Because there's power in getting it out on paper, seeing it, looking at it. And you'd be surprised once you write all these out, things will start going in your mind about, okay, how do I need to shift this? What conversations do I need to have? Who do I need to talk to? Maybe it's an employee. Maybe it's a C-level executive. So that's my challenge. Five things that you're dissatisfied with in your current role. And it's interesting because... You know, now maybe the list will go to six or eight or 10. You can, I'm sure you can have the overachievers out there, but just the notion of having to articulate for yourself to specify materially what is the actual complaint? Is it something that is tangible that I don't like the commute? I don't like my office space. I don't like, you know, I need a new computer, whatever it is. Or is it something more, is it about the chemistry? Is it with me and a coworker or my boss? Is it about, you know, who knows what it could be, but what is the nature of your dissatisfaction to have to really think about how do I write that in a bullet point in a way that somebody else can understand? Yep, right in bullet point. And if you want to go extra credit, you could even have three columns. You could have on the left column, you could have the five dissatisfactions. And then on the right last column, you could have what you think your boss, your superior, or maybe it's not, maybe it's just with the role itself, what you think their answer would be if you brought these to them. And then the middle column, 
you could brainstorm what are some meat in the middle between what their answer would be and what I'm dissatisfied about that I would be agreeable to, and they likely will be as well. Yes. So what kind of compromise would you be willing to accept? Right. Yes. It sounds like it's not just about if you are in a larger organization where you have a boss per se, but you could be a solo, you could be an independent contractor, you could be a smaller business owner and still be able to look at this and say, where am I dissatisfied? And what conversations do I need to have to change this either conversations with myself to say, it's my business. So if I'm not happy with it, what am I doing wrong? Or is it who I'm contracting, outsourcing stuff to? Is it my, you know, my family that I need more support from? What is the nature of the conversation I need to have with whom about each of these points? If, cause heck, if you're your own boss and you're unhappy, that's a problem. Absolutely. Like you don't go into work for yourself so that you can still be unhappy <laughs> and frustrated with your boss because there's only one person to complain to at that point. It's so true. And, and you know, it, it also, it goes from dissatisfaction internally. If you keep it there long enough, that frustration turns to bitterness, which turns to resentment, right? And then what's that saying about bitterness? It's, you know, you drinking the poison and wishing somebody else would die, right? So exactly. you're only hurting yourself in that way. Yes. Yes. I, I love that phrase. I've used that a, a lot. Bitterness or even holding a grudge. Yeah. Same thing, like swallowing poison, waiting for the other person to die. Yeah. Note to self out there, don't do that. Yeah, it doesn't do that. work. <laughs> just in case you weren't sure, let's just put that one to rest too. Yep. That being said, what is a communication related mistake that you have made? Now, holding back and not communicating at all, as you specified a moment ago, there's certainly a big one. Is there another one you can think of? Yeah, I think there is one. And I'll sum it up in this way. And it is being married to my ideas. And this concept is something I learned because I found myself being royally offended at people that were rejecting my ideas. So here's, here, I'll give you an example, perfect example. We were running this phone system in our environment that was maybe 20 years old, right? I mean, no exaggeration, it was old. And all of our competitors and everybody I talked to in the market said, you guys are still using that old, you know, piece of crap. Like you, should, you need to use the voice over IP, the fancy new phones. And so I remember getting on that train and just saying, oh my gosh, this is the way of the future. We have to do this. And I remember taking it to my CEO and saying to him, Steve, we need to upgrade our phone system. It's going to cost you $600,000 a year, but it'll be the best investment you've ever made. I was so gung-ho about this. I really thought this was a change. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and said, why would I buy a new phone system? And I remember being taken aback and saying, did you not just listen to my presentation and <laughs> trying to rehash the same things to him? And I would say, but Steve, if somebody calls you and you don't pick up, they can leave a message that'll be transcribed to email. And he said, well, I have an assistant. She can write me an email about what they said. Okay, but uh, Steve, if you're at home and somebody calls your work phone, it could ring your personal phone. I said, well, why would I want to do that? I don't want anybody calling me when I'm not at work. So everything he had something for, and I remember walking away from that meeting, feeling like he is making the biggest mistake. I can't even believe it. And I was taking it personally. Mm. And I was that's because I was married to that idea. I was married to, we have to get this phone system. It's the only way we're going to be future-proof. And when they said no, it was devastating to me. It really affected me. Just It's funny to look back at now, but it is that idea of being married to that idea. Sure. And people will often take those kinds of ideas personally, even though it 
had minimal material effect on your life. Right. It's almost like if you reject my idea, are you rejecting me? 100%. And that fear of offering, and that's, I think, why a lot of people don't tend to participate in meetings as much as they should, or they feel like, well, if I'm not 100% sure that my idea is going to be accepted, then I don't want to put myself out there for fear of being rejected, right. as opposed to I'm contributing ideas. Right. I doesn't have to be. My job's not on the line. I'm just contributing pieces and maybe people will build on those and they'll come up with an even better idea, but at least I catalyze it or I contribute to part of the thought process that came to the best one. So that being married to your idea, either in insisting that people accept it or being completely afraid that it'll be rejected and thus never sharing it at all. Right. It's funny how we do tend to go to one extreme or the other. It really is. And I'm so glad you said, you know, the that there are things that you'll say in a meeting or you could say in a meeting where it might not be the actual idea that the company runs with. It might spur on something else, right? And what I've realized too, especially within a technical field like cybersecurity or even just in IT in general, you're making recommendations for your company, but it's not your responsibility whether they say yes or no. So it's their decision. You're making the recommendation, you know, and, and living with that and understanding that this, again, is not a personal affront to you. It's the company saying, we don't want to go down that route. So, okay, that's fine. Right. We'll go down another route. Right. So. And often it may be a question of taking a few steps back and saying, okay, why did they not accept what to me seemed to be completely obvious? Maybe my explanation wasn't hitting the mark. Did yeah. I talk too much about features and not really share the benefits or not understand that, okay, well, what are his priorities? Because yeah. he clearly didn't want people to be able to reach him at home and to transcribe and whatever else. But is there a broader value that it would have to everybody else that would then roll up to uh, clearly we missed the mark on the pitch. Absolutely. So maybe it's not that the product or the idea was wrong, but the pitch Absolutely. missed the mark. There's lots of things that we can consider. So I uh, love just dissecting yeah. all that. Yeah. Now, what about the virtual world? We started talking about telephones there. Now, of course, 20 years later, we're in a much more high tech space for you and your team overall. How has your virtual presence improved in the last two years? And what's something that would help you be even better? It's interesting because we, of course, with COVID and everything, it, it shifted. It really forced us to learn how to do, you know, Zoom calls, learn how to interact with everybody. So I think one thing that I've taken to my team is we have a policy, no matter what, you're turning on your videos. Because it is so easy mm. to go into a meeting, turn off your video and not pay attention, you know, go and make yourself something to eat or whatever. And you're not really present in the meeting. And that makes the whole meeting go down in efficiency because people aren't focused. But if your cameras are on, you're looking at each other, the virtual backgrounds, which I know you and I were speaking earlier and kind of laughing about yeah. the virtual backgrounds, but that could be a distractor. And so we have people on you know, my entire team with taken off virtual backgrounds, no matter how messy it is, no judgment, judgment free zone. Yeah. Uh, well, we only judge you if you have a, that virtual background, but you know, <laughs> making sure that we're clear with each other, we can see each other and interact as close as possible. The other thing we started doing is having happy hours with each other. I do quarterly with my team, and that's great to have you know a time where we're not talking about work. We're just shooting the stuff about everything. What shows are you watching? What are you your travel plans for the summer? And really being able to interact virtually as much as it you can to be almost feeling like you're in person. I mean, there's people on my team. I've actually never met in person. There's five or six of them who live out in Pennsylvania. I've never met. But because we interact so much and we interact not only professionally, but also, you know, on the side with happy hours and other events, it does feel like we're, you know, the team feels a lot closer. It's the best way to say that. Sure, sure. And you're in Southern California. Right. You're down in San Diego area, right? Yep. So, yep. And I'm here in Pennsylvania and we're definitely the other side of the planet, yeah. or at least of the country, as it were. Right. So 
that and what's something that would help you be even more effective? Yeah, you know, the, the eye contact's a big one. Mm. There are still people that'll have their setups with their cameras off to the side with the laptop, for example. Right. It'll be turned up. You'll be seeing the side of their face. They're looking at their monitor with everybody else. So having that lined up, just some simple video, making sure the lighting looks good. And, you know, I told my team, too, that, you know, our interactions just in general, virtually, in order to stay close, they have to be a lot more connected in every means. So, for example, we use Microsoft Teams, which is great. We're able to chat all day long. We have channels for each, you know, project and group. And people are able to share ideas and make jokes, post funny memes, things like that. So I really try to encourage everybody to interact. I wish we would interact a little bit more. And I do think that there is... Virtually, it is sometimes hard to make sure that your emails are coming across in a way that if you said them verbally would be appropriate. Yep. So the you know kind of bedside manner, if you will, with clients and partners of the firm. Sure. You know, so I tell my team, look, pretend like you are going to say these words out loud. Read your email out loud and, and see if it sounds good or if it makes it sound like you're talking down to them, a little bit condescending, things like that. So that's something I'm trying to work on my team is a little bit more of the you know, the email etiquette and make sure your response is a little bit more polished. Sure, sure. Now, speaking of teams, and we talked earlier about getting promotions and new jobs and raises and all those kinds of things. What is something, when you think about promotion into real leadership roles at the higher levels, what's something that has disqualified or at least delayed an otherwise technically qualified internal candidate from taking a leadership role? And what would they have needed to do to fix the problem? Yeah. Yeah, and honestly, it's funny. It goes right back to what I was just talking about with the bedside manner with clients, because you know, from a technical field, it's very easy for some people to think or forget that you're actually there to serve the business. The business is our clientele, and I have had a few people who wanted to move up in the ranks, very, very technical and qualified, but the way that they spoke to partners, the way that they handled issues, their abruptness, their you know, making people feel like they didn't get it, you didn't understand it, I'm the only one who understands it. Things like that really turn people off. And there's that saying of, you know, people aren't going to remember what you said, they're going to remember how you made them feel. Yes. And that is so true. And I've had plenty of conversations where the technician or the person wanting to move up might say, but I said the right thing. It's true. What I told them was right. right? Yes, yes. And it's, it's not about the words you use. It was your tone, your congruence was off. Your face, you had a, you know, a scowl on your face or you had tone in your voice or you just, the words came out as being condescending. That's how they took it. Yes. And that's very hard to move them into management roles when they're struggling with that. So that's something where work on thinking about your congruence. Are my words matching my facial expressions, my body language? Are they coming across in, you know, a positive way? Even if it's a hard conversation, being able to, you know, speak to somebody, even an executive, without making them feel like they don't understand something. And that's a skill. But learning how to do that will only improve your stock. Absolutely. And my heart just did a little happy dance because you mentioned the congruence or the alignment, that verbal, vocal, visual connection, the words, voice, and body language. Many people out there have heard me get on that soapbox a number of times because there's a lot of misconceptions and mythologizing about statistics like 55% and 7% and all that nonsense, which is not the case. But if nothing else, just the notion that the expression, it's not what you say, it's how you say it that matters is kind of misguided. It's when there is a misalignment between the two and the what the how you say it doesn't match the what you say, that is the problem. It's the the lack because it's not just about, well, the tone has to be right. Cause if the words, if I say to you, you know, I just this was kind of a 
Well, you know, this was a rather pitiful interview, Nick, but, uh, but thanks. That was good of you to come. Like, what do you mean it was a pitiful interview? Like, you, but I said it nicely. Yeah, but it, well, screw nicely. Who cares about nicely? That's a terrible thing to say. Why would you say that to me? So it's not just, you know, diplomacy is about the words much more than, and being careful about how you frame your point. I forget who it was who said, gosh, Howard Newton, I think, who said that diplomacy or tact is, the art of making a point without making an enemy. Mm. Oh, I love that. How do you, and of course it was Churchill who said that tact is the ability to tell someone to go to hell in such a way that they look forward to the trip. So, you know, pick the one that you like, <laughs> whichever one you happen to prefer. But nevertheless, that it is the framing that matters just as much as then being able to, once you've chosen the right words, do you deliver them in a way that sounds credible, that sounds like you actually mean what you're saying, your intention is good, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, yeah, really finding that congruence, that's a perfect word to use, um, and making sure that your message is balanced that way, super important. And so thank you for emphasizing that if you're looking to get to the top, you got to develop that skill, find that balance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's so true that these quote unquote soft skills. And like you reminded me, you know, we talked before is soft skills are actually hard and it is very true. They are difficult. They take time, they take practice. And, but honestly, that's what makes all the difference. Cause I've always told people I've came from early on in my career when I was hiring people, I was looking for the most technical people. If you could prove to me that you could do X, Y, Z technical tasks, I was going to hire you. But then I realized, oh my goodness, I've made a huge mistake. And I've hired on people that were just cancerous to my team and killed morale. And I ended up realizing, okay, I need to focus on aptitude, on the intangibles, on the things that you can't just go out there and teach somebody. Because I'll teach you the technical. You're going to learn it all day long. But yeah, very, very important for the congruence to have that. Yes, yes. The the people skills and the, I don't like the term soft skills, because as you said, yeah. they are hard. They are surprisingly difficult. You'd think they're a lot more intuitive. And yeah, and yet that's where most people tend to miss the mark. So with that, advice to future generations as our final thought for the day. If you were asked to give the commencement address at a high school graduation ceremony, what advice would you give the graduates regardless of their plans for the future? What's the one thing they have to do to be successful? This is a tough one. I would say something a little bit provocative. I would try to focus on the technical folks, the people that are looking to do something a little bit more, yeah, more technical in nature is the best way to say it. I would actually say that college might not be the answer. And at a high school commencement ceremony, that might be, you know, might hear some shocked expression. It's my show. You can say anything you want. So go ahead. There you go. There you go. But no, but it's a, it is going to be something that people would probably not want to hear, but it is true. I mean, at least in the technical space, trade schools, certifications, or just interning somewhere, so much more valuable than a four-year degree. In a technical field like cybersecurity, I don't care if somebody has a poli-sci degree, a mathematics degree, that those have no bearing. It all comes down to if you've interned, if you have experience, if you have certifications or technical aptitude. So that's what I would say. I would say college might not be for you. Interesting. So no pressure to go to college if you don't feel like it's where you're driven. Absolutely. You can be successful. I mean, I didn't go to college and I've made it to the top. Look and, at that. Um, I know plenty of people that did that route and it really does work. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. 
That's amazing. Okay, so you know, Nick is the CISO up there. I know they have different yeah. terms of sorts, but nevertheless, head of cybersecurity of information security, ninth largest company in the world. And it's not like you're in our grandparents' generation. You're not a baby boomer where perhaps not everybody went to college. You're a young guy by all yeah. standards of sorts for especially to be at that high of a level and didn't go to college. Who knew? Well, that's okay. I got enough degrees for both of us. And frankly, I'm going to second your motion. It's not all that necessary. So uh, amazing, amazing suggestions. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nick. How can people learn more about you and Baker Tilly? Easiest place to find me is LinkedIn and uh, Nick Ryan, R-Y-A-N. Find me, add me there. It's a great place. I post some great content about trying to bridge the gap between non-technical sales, marketing with the technology space with CISOs directly. So we encourage people to do that. But thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. So much fun. Thank you for sharing your wisdom today. And everybody else out there, thank you for joining, for tuning in as always. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't yet so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and anywhere else so we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And of course, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.